When organisations are accommodating of people, they can create more inclusive workplaces for parents, people with different schedules, people with disabilities, and grow out a really dynamic workforce that works for everyone, rather than applying strict rules of, are you logged in by 9am? Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by Softcat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on the detail. Welcome back to another episode of Explain It. I am your host, Zach Abbott. Over the next two episodes, we'll be doing something a little bit different and asking our panel of experts the questions that you guys have been submitting to us. Joining me today for this AMA is Craig Lazinski, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Data and Emerging Tech, Adam Harding, Softcat's Chief Technologist for End User Computing, Adam Luca, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Cybersecurity, and Dean Gardner, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Cloud Technology. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thank you for joining me today to answer the questions that our listeners have submitted. Now, before we get into the show, one question from me. What is your perfect Sunday? Lots. So... Yeah, I think my, my perfect Sunday, I've had some good Sundays recently in terms of, you know, it's been lovely weather, spend a bit of time uh, by a lake or a swimming pool, relaxing, soaking up a bit of sun, a few beers with, with my wife and some friends, then get back home, a little bit of a nap, some good food, a bit of sport on TV, some, some football, Formula One, hockey, um, and then, yeah, just chill out with a bottle of wine and uh, get, get merry with uh, a few few bits of food in front of the TV. Chilled and relaxed. Lovely. Dean Gardner. My perfect Sunday would be football in the morning, Sunday lunch, and then West Ham beating Chelsea or Tottenham on the TV, and then a trip down the pub in the evening, and then to bed. Very simple man. Simple. Nice. Adam Harding. So my perfect Sunday... I think this is this is one I've done before actually. An early morning blast around the Alps on my motorbike, an afternoon dive bombing off the back of a pedalo into a lake with my mates and my family, and then a couple of beers and a barbecue before settling for settling in for a movie night. And I think that's just about it. Sounds pretty good to me. And uh, last but not least, Adam Luca. So my perfect Sunday morning would have to be probably waking up too early. Three, four o'clock in the morning, um, taking a large brisket, probably faffing about with um, my smoker for the next hour, trying to get it up to temperature before sort of loading the brisket on and probably spending 14 to 18 hours sitting by the side of the barbecue, salivating, slowly drinking through my supply of beers for the day. I can't think of anything better than spending a ridiculous amount of time waiting for something to cook to then proceed to only eat it in about four and a half minutes probably accompanied by sitting and reading some really trashy sci-fi books. I'm sort of one of those people who likes sci-fi that's genuinely terrible, usually costs about 40 pence off Amazon, and is usually related to some sort of aliens taking over the world. All right, so clear winner, Adam Harding's got to be, hasn't it? That sounds, to me, uh, no offence, guys, <laughs> chilled out Sunday is probably what I would end up with as well, but that one just sounded a lot more exciting. Right, that is quite enough of that. Let's get on with the show. Okay, guys, uh, start with a um, fairly broad one. How have cybersecurity threats changed over the years? As a user, what can I do to protect myself? 
cybersecurity as a an area continues to evolve and is typically driven by two major things. One is the motivations of the attackers. So what are they trying to achieve? So are they looking to extort money from you, which is becoming, you know, became much more popular when ransomware and crypto malware became uh, sort of the major uh, target or, or major focus of, of threat actors? Is it I'm looking to take you offline? You know, if we think back to the early 2000s, you know, very much uh, DDoS attacks were one of the most common or most utilized way that we were that threat actors would attempt to either extort money out of organizations to to pay to keep them online or alternatively to flex their skills and demonstrate their credibility within the hacker community so as those changes the types of targets and techniques that people will use will will develop it's interesting to actually see recently especially that we've um, an evolution of the extortion where so ransomware and similar types of technology to something that they're now calling double extortion as if getting extorted once wasn't enough uh, we've decided that we need to extort people twice so what happens in this scenario is, you know, everyone's quite familiar, hopefully, with what ransomware is. So where somebody installs malicious software on your device and um, and uses it to encrypt and remove your access to your internal files. What was starting to happen was that people were getting more capable, more able to respond to those typical attacks. So, you know, they had good backups. Maybe they had good ways of recovering their data. And what the threat actors noticed were people were starting to pay less frequently. So all of a sudden their rate of success was dropping off. So what they then realized was, okay, well, if people are getting better at recovering their data, what could we then do to kind of reapply that pressure, refocus the victim's mind to actually give us some money? And that's where double extortion comes in. So now what they're doing is they're not only encrypting your data, but what they're doing is they're taking a copy of it as well. And what they're then saying to you is they come to you, Zach, and they're saying, Zach, so, you know, give us two million pounds to get your data back. And you turn around and say, no, I'm not going to do that because I've got a really good backup strategy. And they say, okay, well, now give us £2 million, otherwise we'll leak your data. They've realized that as organizations are becoming more uh, more confident, more, more able to protect against those attacks, what they're now applying the leverage of fines, both reputational damage, but also of uh, the Information Commissioner's Office and similar organizations, and going back and saying, okay, yeah, so we don't have your data, but actually we're going to leak it now. So all of a sudden they're able to get you back at that negotiating table. They're able to get you you back on that hook and they're able to more uh, effectively push and apply pressure so that people will pay. Fundamentally, the, as we become more effective at, at preventing you know certain technical attacks, this will start to shift to being much closer to just extortion and just scams, confidence scams we'll start to see is really a stripping away of the technology aspects to just being just purely human. Actually, how can I trick you? How can I get you to to do whatever malicious thing I'm looking to achieve? All right. So recently, lots of businesses will have moved to the cloud for the first time, or they will have adopted some kind of cloud strategy due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Storage is often abundant when customers first move, but Years down the line, do you think there is any concern that businesses will be at the limits of the included cloud storage? And how do you think businesses can plan for the future cloud storage management? Sorry, a uh, bit of a long one there. It is a long question, but I think it's a 
there's different types of cloud storage. I think, you know, Adam's on, Harding um, is on, and I think, you know, he's got obviously an opinion on this as well, because you've got the unstructured data piece, which, yeah, you know, the, the one drives of this world and the drop boxes, et cetera. And, and naturally there, there's an entry point that's, that's free within those storage um, solutions that entice you in. And, and obviously you, you, you'll need that as an extension, your unstructured and your file data. And we're encouraging that. And that's why, you know, there's companies out there giving that kind of storage away free. Will it get to a point where they'll start charging over certain amounts? Well, they kind of do now. Um, I just think that it's becoming so cheap at that sort of unstructured level that they can accommodate that. I think the storage when it comes to cloud itself, as in AWS, Azure, Google and others, you know, there's storage in there that is charged from day dot. So if you're migrating databases or workloads, as an example, you're paying for that. It's a pay-as-you-go model. So there are different levels of cloud storage. So it depends what you're doing, what you're looking to consume within cloud. And you have to consider all of it because it's all relevant, um, especially if you've got a cloud strategy. So your end user strategy and how that is accommodated by unstructured, absolutely, you know, there's solutions out there that are free up to a point. And then naturally, if you're moving workloads from your on-premises environment to a public cloud, that pretty much is going to get charged from day one. And there's going to have to be metering. And there's certain tools that you can now use to manage that. And naturally, you do not want to have waste. You know, historically, people bought on-premises storage and, you know, they, they, they didn't really do a cleanse. They just kind of kept growing that data footprint, buy more storage arrays, buy more storage arrays. And that's great for, you know, an organization like, you know, SoftCat, we're a reseller. Yeah. If people want more storage on-premises, we're happy to accommodate. But in cloud, if you're being metered, and obviously if you're growing that without it being controlled or looked after in some way, that can get very expensive very quickly. So, so I think the way you operate and manage within cloud, how you take ownership of the data itself that runs on those platforms, that is definitely shifting. You're going to, as an IT organization within a business, you're going to have to have much more visibility and understanding as to what that storage looks like. So in answer to the direct question, there will be cost implications on running storage in cloud. It just depends what you're running and where you're going to be running it and what particular version of that storage you're using. Yeah, so I think as well... Um there's certain organizations that have taken a traditional storage view to storage in the cloud and who previously in the kind of pre-SSD days would perhaps have provisioned far more storage than they need in order to gain the amount of performance and IO and, and resilience they needed from their storage arrays because they were using SCSI or SAS disks. But data, data is effectively a gas. It will fill the volume of whatever space you give it. Um, and so whether that's on-premises and looking at... A, personal drives looking at storage arrays, but also in cloud services, whether it's you know, the idea of you potentially have an almost unlimited amount of space in Office 365 for your emails, in fact, that will that will continue to grow and having good policies right out of the gate to, to archive data, to move data to colder storage tiers. So if you're in AWS, you know, moving things from S3 to Glacier to Glacier Deep Archive and then retiring that data depending on your own policies, your own regulatory environment is really important to do up front because it's very hard to, to claw all that back. It's very arduous to go through and filter everything after the fact. I think that realistically, there is an enticement to get your data into the cloud. Sooner or later, you will you know, inevitably hit the limit, whether that's a year down the line, 10 years down the line or whatever. But it's not really, and this might sound like a silly statement, it's not really about managing the storage so much as managing the data, which is something that's always been the case. <clears throat> It's about looking at what you've, you're actually using. It's about rationalizing and deduplicating and archiving that which is of little value to you and you don't need to have immediately accessible and you need to move it just as you always would to the right storage tier. And to Lodz's point, 
figuring that process out at the offset will save you a lot of pain, uh, a lot of pain, and a lot of wastage and a lot of uh, expenditure uh, here and now. So, so yeah, I, I completely agree with the guys. There cool. will be a limit. Um, get your house in order from the off and have a plan. So maybe a more of a question, probably to probably Dean and, and maybe Lods. Um, is there a way for customers to help manage the uncertainty? Because one of the things I guess previously, you know, you you, you stumped up with your capital investment for your big storage array, and you kind of at least knew for the period in which you made that capital investment what the cost was per terabyte. And as we are shifting to consumption-based services where the contract is essentially for that moment that you signed the contract and is variable and, and subject to change. How how do you think organisations can shield themselves from price increases, you know, service degradation or improvement? I guess a lot of the things I hear a lot on my security side of the fence is they're adding too many goddamn features because I have to manage all the new stuff that they're throwing at me. So it's always kind of sounds good, you know, hey, every week you get 10,000 new things added. But from a usability perspective, how do I train my users to know how to use it from a security perspective? How do I secure it? And how do I ensure I understand the cost model of consuming those services that may not be immediately transparent when you turn it on? Just last thought as maybe an example that we could talk around, you know, Teams, you know, Teams has exploded. But when you think about it, if you use Teams, you're going to start to put data in SharePoint online. You're going to start to put more data in OneDrive. And that may come with associated costs that you may not directly connect to the Teams application itself. I guess, Dean, probably to yourself for, your, for thoughts, maybe. I just think it's the balance between the, what you're trying to do to improve the way you're driving your business forward and how you're giving the tools to the users to innovate faster and all these things that you hear in the market that we should be pushing to help business move forward. And and these tools are there essentially to drive that, to drive that efficiency um, for users, uh, make it better for them. But that sometimes will come at a cost uh, and for me. And, and it's how you operate and how you maintain and manage. And without you know fear of repeating, it is about getting the policies and the controls in place and the governance. Because you're not going to stop users because you're giving them tools to do more. You're not going to then say, well, we're going to stop you doing something. But it's how you govern and put the policies around it and, and, and how you then can have an element of control. The cost associated... That is, you know, we're, we're, we're moving into that consumption and subscription world and it is a meter-based system. So you need to have the right tools that can ingest and look at that information to provide you some proactive recommendations. You can then start, you know, turning stuff off. And actually, in my opinion, you can get more control from some of the tools that are available looking at those cloud platforms and you could probably before of having one big storage array. And um, and and for me, it's, it's the balance. But is it going to be cheaper in the long term? I don't think we know, you know, in five years time, if everybody has moved the majority of their workloads to clouds in terms of their data, is that going to be cheaper than buying one big array that you're sweating down over three to five years? I don't think anybody knows the answers yet because we don't know what it looks like. Just what I wanted to add is I was a data center guy and I used to spend a lot of time helping people understand their application sets, understand their, their use cases. And the reality of buying on-premise storage was that you arrived at a middle ground. You, know, you have some applications that needed ferociously fast I.O. You need some applications that needed very little I.O. but huge storage. And we went through the, the eras of tiered storage within your systems and all that type of stuff. But the reality was you essentially went and bought what you thought was the best, was, was the middle ground that would just about satisfy 
all the at both ends of the spectrum. And you have now have choice in clouds to, to Lodz's point, you can be very specific about the way you provide your storage and data performance based exactly on the applications you've got. It does take a greater focus and a greater understanding of your applications and how they should work. But you will get the best of all worlds rather than trying to find a middle ground that kind of gives you just about performance, but not as much as you'd like, and just about, about enough capacity, but not as much as you'd like. And we've we talked quite a lot there about cloud strategy, but something I, I want to circle back to is something that uh, you mentioned, Luca, uh, is Teams, which has been, as you say, over the past sort of however many months we've been in this situation we're in, it's been massive. So I think maybe a good question uh, for you, Adam, is what technologies have been critical to enabling working from home and productivity tracking during lockdown? And is there anything new that we should be looking out for in the next six to 12 months? Realistically, um, the surge in working from home because of the pandemic got us back to basics. It got us back to the fact that um, everybody needed a laptop, everybody needed a phone, and everybody needed a decent internet connection. And if you had those three things, then the IT teams behind that could connect you to the on-premises services that you, you required, the SaaS services you required, the virtual desktops that you're using, and the backend applications that, that you require. Um, so actually, it was it was being very much back to basics. Um, I think now we're in the position, and actually for for the last little while, we're in the position where it's time for us to start. You know, we had to give ground on user experience to keep the shop open, yeah, and we had to give ground um, because we were in a rush, uh, or for the most part, we were in a rush on the security posture, uh, and now we're in the in the in the phase whereby there is a realization whether we go back to off the offices full time, whether you've got certain companies, a small number of companies that completely want to remain remote forever, both sides of that, we need to start finessing that user experience again and setting it again back into a, a comfortable security posture. So with regards to what was critical, it was the basics, internet connectivity, a laptop, that's updated and you can see and you can control and you can update um, a smartphone because people need to talk to people and that internet connectivity. Now we're in the position for the next six months whereby finessing that, that user experience, it's a full range. Some of it is about the fact that people using RDP to connect uh, users from a remote laptop or a remote device directly back to one that sat in the office or the production facility or the design office or whatever it is you're doing, because that was one of the quickest, easiest ways using things like RDP, like TeamViewer, like Bongar, like Splashtop to just keep the shop open. And there are still a lot of organizations that are sat in that position, um, but it's, it's, there was a lot of people that struggled with things like maxing out their VPN connections because they never expected to have more than 20% of their organization ever connecting back in at any, any point in time. So there's a lot of that fundamental groundwork that's being done. Looking aside from the basics, the things that we start to see, we start to see come in, and I think this is really around trust. I think we've got to be very careful with this, is the introduction of things like employee monitoring tools. And there's the kind of Gestapo end of the, of the spectrum, whereby you deploy tools to devices that monitor everybody's keystrokes and what websites they're on. And you, know, you can measure down to the second how much time they've actually spent doing work for you. And then there are things that are a little bit lighter, things like perhaps Toggle um, that allows people to check in and check out and, and broadly um, 
allow team leaders and line managers to understand how much time you spent on a specific project. So there's the employee monitoring side. I am cautious about that because I think we, we, we live in a trust economy now. And I think that if you do not show your people that you trust them, they will rear up and, um, and you will not get the best out of them. I think it's more, it's different now because managing a team when you can see them all is very different to managing a team where you can't. And that lack of communication, just that interpersonal communication makes it far more difficult to keep track of things like projects. It's not about micromanagement. It's not about um, the big brother side of things. It's just about organization. It's just about making sure we, we avoid duplication and missings and going too far down the wrong rabbit hole because you've not caught up with your team members in a week on a project and you're off on one. Um, so I think those are the types of tools that I, I would imagine will, will start to come in um, and become more prevalent over the next kind of six months. And actually, I think they probably have a place in the for, for, the, for, for, the, for the longer term. I'm sure we're going to have a question in here somewhere about going back to offices, but broadly speaking, you're going to end up with a mix. Your blend might be di a little different to what it was before, but you're going to end up with people that are, you can see and are on premise and are involved in the small informal communications, the, the chats that you have because you sat next to people. And you're going to have those that are in the, the back of beyond. But you need to make everybody feel like you're part of one team. Everybody's got to feel like they're pulling in the, the same direction. Everybody's got to feel like they're is as important and their career is, is as is important as the person that you're sitting next to in an office. So I think the collaboration tools and the task management side of it will continue to gain momentum. The employee monitoring will, I just don't like it. I think something that's become fairly clear over the past five, six months of March is that something that I think we've known for a while that Particularly because when we talk about working from home, we're talking effectively about knowledge work, about office-based work. We're not talking about you can't, you know, farmers mostly do work from home because they live on the farm. Um, but retail work, logistics, key workers, carers, that kind of thing, that's not really what we're talking about working from home. And to my mind, something that we've known for a while that's been confirmed is that the way we structure knowledge work and a lot of these employee monitoring tools are based about attendance. You are there from nine to five. You have, a, you have an eight hour work day, which is designed around factory work. It's designed around the assembly line and around daylight hours for farming. The knowledge worker that sits in front of a, a laptop their day and their tasks are structured in a way that was designed long before a lot of the, the work that they're doing, a lot of the things they're interacting with in, in terms of IT, the way we collaborate using Teams or Zoom or WebEx, using the different software tools. And I've definitely seen some, some great remote working insights products from, from vendors like Splunk and Liquidware, but they're more about checking, okay, is the network fine? Are the devices fine? Is the employee able to connect to services? Is there acceptable amounts of, uh, of latency and jitter? Because home internet connections are different from business internet connections. So that upstream is going to become a lot more noticeable when you're doing things like video calls. And I think that those organizations that are using these employee monitoring tools to monitor attendance, to make sure you're, you're not opening a Chrome browser and, and using the internet at work, but you're sat in front of the application and doing data entry or whatever it is, is is pretty draconian. And I'm hoping that as a as a result of this, we can start to 
make work more flexible to understand the individual differences between people. I know personally, I do most of my best work a little bit later on in the day and through to the evening. I've got family and friends all over the world and working for a, a solely UK based company that does make things difficult in terms of my personal life. And for me, a remote remote role is ideal for a lot of our sales teams. They're really missing the buzz and struggling with that that ability to not be able to just pop their head over the desk and have a conversation with someone to take the energy from their colleagues and put that into their calls to very quickly get feedback on the interactions they're having with customers. And in any environment, applying software to a perceived problem is usually a a sticking plaster and at worst is just a terrible idea that, that gives you the wrong information. But certainly I'm hoping that whether we're talking about remote work, whether we're talking about, you know, organizations going back into the office, that we actually look at the entire IT environment as an enablement factor to to make people more productive, happier, and more able to do their best work. Because I think when organisations are accommodating of, of people, they can create more inclusive workplaces for parents, people with different schedules, people with disabilities, for non-neurotypical individuals, and grow out a really dynamic workforce that works for everyone rather than applying strict rules of, are you logged in by 9am? Are you doing 40 keystrokes a minute? Because there's always going to be people that will find a way around those. As well as, is that actual actually productive? And finding that value chain, that link between what an individual is doing and the company's top and bottom line is, is really important. You're absolutely right. And, and actually your point on being careful about being draconian, it's one thing to be semi-draconian when you are within the confines of an office. I think when you start being draconian when people are in their homes, I think that it just lands badly. And this is really about culture. Some people want to protect their culture and some people are going to need to tweak it and adjust it to resonate well and fit in this, in this, in this different world. But yes, uh, and one point I wanted to, to touch on about technologies that we are seeing and will probably need to become more prevalent over the next not too long, you know, six months, 12 months type of thing, is a lot of organizations are struggling with a complete lack of visibility of their end user experience, their end user devices, their end user applications. People can't understand why things work perfectly well from Southampton, but do not work well from London and so on, you know, much further afield to be fair. Um, So I think that, well, what I've seen and what I continue, I expect to continue to see is a lot of people looking to tools like uh, Eternity, tools like Lakeside, tools like Liquidware Labs um, to help them get a view and visibility of their actual fleet, the actual device fleet, so that they, from the perspective of the user, which is important, it's got to be from the perspective of the user, they can essentially trace what is happening from that application down through to data access, down through the device, down through the connectivity back to whichever service, whether it's cloud or on-premise that you're getting to, and very quickly um, do rapid root cause analysis. Because it's really about productivity. You know, yes, we want people to be happy and to enjoy their experience and really to make sure that technology isn't getting in the way of anybody. But to do that, things do go wrong. We've t- we've, we have far more complex estates now than we did six months ago because we've gone from, look at Softcat, we've gone from having nine offices to 1,500 offices. And if you're going to stand a chance of maintaining the experience, which really means making sure technology doesn't get in the way and productivity can improve, which we've seen 
in lots of organizations actually which i think surprised a lot of people then having the t you if you can't see it you cannot measure it if you cannot measure it you cannot prove that you've improved it um so i, I think that that piece there will really kick up a gear the reality is it's about the intent if you use those tools with the intent to look at well, which individuals are really flying which teams are really standing out amongst the group and you use those to learn what are they doing differently so that we can ask the other teams and other individuals and apply that learning to them to bring them up as well i think that is a perfectly reasonable use of those monitoring tools a quick follow-up to that then i guess taking everything that we've talked about um in regards to that into account how do you think the future office is going to look post pandemic do you think people are going to move away from your traditional office and start to leverage more kind of meeting room space or if they continue to run offices from a technology perspective do you envisage any wholesale changes in technologies or innovation so it's going to be very interesting to see which employers do what because as we've already discussed there are issues in terms of how you manage and motivate individuals who are working remotely who aren't in the office who are remote or field-based there are issues in in how you manage their technology there's additional technology required and rob has um very kindly provided us with some lovely asmr grade microphones with which to record this podcast and that's part of the challenges that you know we can't get together and record and there are going to be new challenges presented to all sorts of organizations but at the same time office buildings are really expensive and you look at some of the big big towers you've seen in, in Canary Wharf, some of the spaces in the city of London. And you look at the overall costs of running an office, not only the utilities, but everything else. You know, I've had to start paying for my own coffee. I have to, I've, you know, a lot of us have bought new chairs, new desks, new spaces that, while, while Softcat has been been helpful and provided some of the, the end user equipment for us, for a lot of organizations, an employee working from home full time is a an employee they don't have to pay rent for, an employee they don't have to buy a desk space for. And so there are definite financial incentives to that, as well as if you remove the location aspect, you can attract a wider field of employees. So organizations are going to be looking from a number of different angles. I think it is absolutely beneficial to have a part remote culture. I think very few organizations will go full remote because that is very difficult. Logistically, time zone, management, that is really, really hard, particularly those that are more client facing or, or formed around high performing team collaboration. The way we structure work as, you know, I think we've already established in, again, in the knowledge workspace, leaving out retail, et cetera, in the knowledge workspace, work is no longer really a place you go to. It's a thing you do. And some some organizations have you do that from the office. A lot of us now do it from our, our living rooms or our spare bedrooms. Organizations will be looking really holistically at the entire spectrum of, of what they're doing. And I think in a similar way to we've seen with technology, that there's a real blend of all in on cloud, all in on premises, and then this huge switch in the middle, we're going to see organizations that are still fully office-based, some that move fully remote, and a huge swathe of different organizations and company structures in the middle. The use of the office space will be used to protect the culture that you want to protect. 
I look after digital workspace with Softcat. So I've had a lot of conversations over the last little while about some organizations that are staying exactly as they are office-wise, some organizations that are closing a percentage of those big offices um, because they want they think that actually a blend, whether that be 20, 30, 40% of uh, their workers will want to work away from the office at least some of the time. And those that there's been very, very few, I mean, incredibly few, they're, they're notable by how rare they are really, things like Twitter, where everybody's going to be remote from here on in. Very few that are doing fully remote. And then actually quite a few that are thinking, well, I'd rather collapse the five offices I have and uh, instead rent 20 small office spaces that are more meeting room orientated, scattered all over the country or countries that we operate in, so that it's more convenient for our customers and our people to go and meet in, meet in person. So I think there's a blend, but I really think it comes back to that. What culture do you want to protect? So there will be a spectrum, there'll be a range of approaches. What I do think is consistent, and what I've seen as a con very consistent theme throughout all of it, regardless of what you're doing with your physical office space, is building remote ready workforce and making that part of your strategic principles um, that is happening across the board. It's one thing to get caught out by a pandemic now or a flood or a fire or the train's not working or even an, you know, an office having a power cut or individual an individual level people having to take their cars to be serviced or their kids to school or whatever. But to be caught out again after we've had this very apparent lesson people's careers they're not going to survive it so i think the remote ready workforce rather than a remote workforce that is a design principle that is fundamentally baked in now and i think we'll continue to see with regards to the offices themselves um before the pandemic because uh, to, to lodge's point actually because of the cost of office space specifically in the big cities you know london new york paris wherever it might be people were already starting to really look into the use of smart office technology to help uh change their desk environment to more of a hot desk kind of setup and realistically, so they could have fewer of those, have more meeting spaces, make them more, uh, make it a richer experience for customers and for your internal employees. And using IoT and using Bluetooth sensors and using room sensors and um, using um, all types of technology to make sure that you made the best use of the space you got. I think there's the other thing that we will that we will see is there is an increasing pressure to, I suppose, give people the power of 10 so that we can achieve more stuff with fewer people. It's a dark subject, but people are going to lose their jobs, unfortunately. There is a reality that the cost base for most organisations is going to have to stay static, if not come down. But they're equally, at the very same time, going to need to be more productive and going to need to be more competitive. So I think there's plenty, plenty of pressure on IT teams and and actually at a leadership level to digitize any of the remaining manual processes that were tied to you having to be in a location at a specific point of time to move a, a purchase on. I think there's also going to be a pressure just to pull together any existing digitized processes into more orchestrated and um, uh, automated streams that just require as little manual interactions as possible. So whether that is checking people into a meeting room using IoT sensors and smart technology, or looking at your processes and, and creating applications 
so that you can digitize them and free them from being locked to a location. That type of thing is going to be really important. But when it comes to the offices, just to round it up, most of the people I'm talking to from a cultural perspective are very worried about not having their people you know, pitching in together and learning from each other and their new people evolving as fast as they can by learning from their peers. So it's predominantly a remote ready workforce and the office spaces are becoming more dynamic because we expect people to, it's going to be okay to take a day a week from home because you've proved it. Well, that is it for this episode of Explain It. Craig, Adam, Adam and Dean, it's been great going through these questions with you today. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you to everyone who submitted your questions and for getting involved with the show. If anything in this show or previous shows has piqued your interest, do get in contact with us, podcast at softcap.com. Don't forget to click subscribe so that you can stay up to date with future episodes and seasons. Thank you very much for listening to Explain It from Softcap. Softcap.